Hey church, Pastor B here, and I just want to take a moment to thank you for checking out this series called No Longer Afraid, where we tackled uh, hot topic issues from a biblical perspective. Now, uh, the things shared in this series were not intended to be an exhaustive response to the issue because all of these issues are complex, but we do hope that it will stir conversation with you and allow you to dig in deeper into God's Word to see that God's not afraid to talk about these issues. So we hope you enjoy this. Hey, when we uh, came up with the idea of this series, we anticipated about 80 people. <laughs> Just look around really quick. The question is, is this a topic that is a concern? So the subject of our series, the multiple times we're going to be doing this throughout the year, is no longer afraid. And the concern that I've had and the concern that... Uh, we as a pastoral staff have had is that we see an increasing number of believers that are afraid to speak about their faith. They are afraid to speak openly about what scripture teaches and they've been taught to be afraid, not by scripture, not by the spirit of God, not by the church, but by our culture. And so it's evidence that the culture is making inroads into the church. Is this true? So what we want to do is, is we want to make sure that uh, we are talking about these things in a way uh, that will give us a spine and give us strength. But also the other reason for the concern is many of us are afraid that if I am an open believer, then that automatically must make me an angry believer. And that is patently untrue. So our goal this evening is to be able to share the truth of the Word of God, but be able to say this is how a God of love who would send his son to die for the world because his concern was that they would die in sin and be forever separated from him. This God of love has said certain things that are true, and he said these truths are so important and so destructive, I'm willing to give my life in order to set you free from these things. So there's a, a standard of belief in Scripture. We're going to talk about uh, same-sex attraction and just in general sexuality tonight. Um, but I want you to understand that our goal is going to be um, to be mindful, both of what the Word of God says, but how is it that we can arrive at a message of grace? In fact, that we would feel the pull of Scripture calling us to be gracious. When I wrote about uh, this topic earlier, I had commented, Erwin Lutzer uh, said this when he was talking about same-sex attraction. He says, I cannot stress too strongly that we must not view homosexuality as a sin that is divorced from our own sins within the church. Adultery, greed, gossip, pornography, to name just a few. Ed Dobson, no relation to James Dobson, former pastor of a large church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, received criticism when his church launched an outreach to gays several years ago. Some of them feared that the church might be overrun, they said. Ed Dobson countered, if the church gets overrun with homosexuals, that would be terrific. They can take their place in the pews right next to liars, gossips, materialists, and all the rest of us who entertain sin in our lives. He concludes by saying, when I die, if someone stands up and said, Ed Dobson loved homosexuals, then I will have accomplished something in my life. Jesus loved them too. 
No wonder homosexuals came to his church even though they knew that he did not approve of their lifestyle. We want to have that kind of discussion. It's not about approval if we're kind. Uh, It's about truth, though, and we need to start with the truth. There are three concerns that I had for this evening. Three concerns. The first one was, I'm concerned for some of you that are in the room and you've come in and you're discouraged. And it's possible tonight uh, that this issue is so emotionally charged that you just say, I absolutely just can't stand with God in this area. Or you might be coming from outside of the faith and you say, you know what, I'm just coming here, but if there is anything, any stink of historic Christian statements or standards or biblical truth, I am going to reject it. If you're here and that is you, this is what I'm going to ask you to do this evening. I don't want you uh, to to participate actually even in the the Q&As. I want you to listen this evening to a family discussion. And I'm asking you to, to watch as the church begins to discuss what it is that they believe, what God has called them to account in. And I'm going to ask you to listen to the tone and the tenor of the discussion and see if it matches what you have been taught on the outside. Just listen tonight. I want you to know that you're welcome if you are here in opposition, but this tonight is a family meeting, okay? This is a family time where we as believers are having a discussion. I want you to understand that the tone of our discussion is that truth and grace should be on display. Truth without grace, we've observed, is judgmentalism. Grace without truth is sentimentality. Jesus had grace and truth. We want to put those on display. So I'm concerned for those of you that are discouraged this evening. Just listen. Secondly, I'm concerned for those who have bought into the war rhetoric. You're using war language. Uh, somebody pointed out that uh, it's not just Christians who have been at war. I, I, wanna, I want you to hear the war terminology on both sides of the discussion. And I want you to understand that uh, what we are saying tonight is that the war terminology is not the appropriate terminology. In a book called After the Ball, um, Two leading uh, gay writers back in the 90s um, came to the decision that they needed to lay out a three-point offensive to be able to bring um, same-sex attraction into the center of America mainstream. And they had a three-point war that they wanted to, or a campaign they wanted to bring to the American people. One, they wanted to desensitize the American public. They said they wanted to bring a continuous flood of gay-related advertising in the least offensive way possible to normalize that relation. Two, they wanted to jam those who oppose the message. Violently, by any means possible, block any dissent to our messaging, punishing those who dissent and exclude them as unrighteous. And third, they wanted to convert popular opinion The homosexual agenda can succeed by the conversion of the average American's emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda to the nation via the media. Their words. Their language. We argue that for all practical purposes, gays should be considered to have been born gay even though sexual orientation, their statement, 
Sexual orientation for most humans seems to be the product of a complex interaction between innate predispositions and environmental factors during childhood and early, early adolescence. In other words, we don't see the genetic link, but let's tell them it is there. Pretty amazing. Uh, I have quote after quote after quote after quote from them, but the essence of it is we are at war. It's one that can be won if we, wi if we wage it appropriately. Mazden and uh, Kirk. But it wasn't just them in the 90s that were at war. It was also the moral majority. Do you remember any of these statements that rose up at the exact same time to be equal and opposite? Statements like AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals. It is God's punishment for the society that would tolerate them. Another statement someone must not be afraid to say, this perversion is wrong. If we don't act now, homosexuals will own America. If you and I do not speak up now, this homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men, women, and children who get in its way. Our nation will pay the price. Jerry Falwell, who was the head of that movement at the time, said this, People have accused me of many things, racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny, intolerance, anti-Darwinism, anti-homosexuality. Well, I tell those people there was someone else who was accused of those things, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I rest my case. I just want to go on record with a couple statements there. America has always had a concern for the lost because there's always been quite a few lost people in our number, right? So whose nation is being lost? We need to be concerned for them. But secondly, Jesus Christ was not for all of those things. He has always been a friend of sinners. Amen? We better believe that, folks. He was listed as the friend of sinners, and that's why the religious hated him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? He says, you got to look inside your ranks. It's always been, as Jesus pointed out, that we got to take the log out of our own eye before we begin to look at others. In fact, that is one of the tests in this war. We are concerned about the war terminology. I just want you to be very careful tonight. One of the goals I would have is that you would stop going out as if to war, that you would go out willingly serving a hurting public with truths that you will not back up from. We need to know the truth. We need to stand on the side of scriptural truth and be willing to take the abuse, not punch it down their throat, but plead with them to respond to Jesus. Third concern that I have for this evening is I have a concern for those who are no longer sure you can even discover truth. In a recent poll, uh, done by the Q, so it's a, a, a group that just studies the United States, they found that two-thirds, 60% of Americans actually believe that the greatest test for truth is their own gut. Okay? <laughs> that means in this room, you think that you will be able to decide what is true just hearing it. You know enough in your own to decide all truth. Okay? Now, we're going to laugh about that. You can chuckle about that. But that's actually sitting here in the room. Okay? Some of you have done your research, and by research you said, I found a bunch of people that think like I do, and we're all right. 
The problem is we start with the uh, wrong frame of reference. I want to pull up, if we can, uh, the little picture of the dude. Do we have that up there? We only have a couple pictures tonight. I have this here in, your, in front of you. But it's the wrong frame of reference. And, and here we have a guy that is focused, first of all, on self-fulfillment. All right, and this is the frame of reference that we typically come to in the United States. So we're in a, a land of individualism, and we start with the idea of self-fulfillment being our, one of our core values or our reference point for studying truth. The key questions for somebody who's focused on self-fulfillment is, will this make me happy or will this meet my felt needs? You see his hand is up there, and, and by that he is saying, I reject all those things that interfere with a positive answer to these two questions. So I reject anything that will interfere with what will make me happy or interfere with my felt needs. Now, just on the face of it, many of us would say, well, I can see how that might be problematic, okay? But if you begin to think about even your own faith journey or how come you picked a church or how come you picked some of the associations or even your job or the things in your life, how many times have you made decisions based on, will this make me happy? Do I enjoy that place better than another? Not based on another frame of reference. The other frame of reference that scripture has for us is one that is based on self-sacrifice. When you're Frame of reference is self-sacrifice when you're discovering truth or trying to figure out what it is you should be about. The key questions you have are, will this make God happy? And will this meet the needs of others? And then you reject all those things that interfere with a positive answer to those questions. In other words, I reject anything that would not make God happy, and I reject anything that will not meet the needs of others. In other words, I want to serve others, not myself. The problem that we're having in the church, folks, is that we are trying to come to godly conclusions using the first frame of reference. So we begin saying, well, this makes me happy, and therefore it must be God's answer. And then we get confused when something we run into begins to not make us happy, or somebody else is not happy, and therefore they can't settle in the truth. And so you begin to wonder, well, is it really true for them? but we've got our frame of reference all messed up. I want you to notice the other one on the other side of your piece of paper there, the process for seeking spiritual truth. Um, in the United States, quite often, this is how the first one there, how we seek truth. We, we start with an experience. So I have a friendship or a person that is having a certain type of experience, and then I use reason. I apply reason to their experience, and then I begin to evaluate. So I bring in other people's reasoning on that experience, and then I try to interpret Scripture based on the conclusions I've already come to because of my experience and my own personal reasoning. This way of evaluating, which is common, even in our churches, is focused on the individual, not on the issue as a whole. But a scriptural paradigm, the one that is historic and consistent, is we start with Scripture. Why? God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My whole frame of reference is going to be completely different than yours, and I want to bring you to a different conclusion. So you start with Scripture, his statements. You have a historical understanding that how have people always read those words, including those in particular who walked with him. And then we apply reason to that, and then we add that to our experience. In other words, we're experiencing people who are struggling with God's conclusions. How do I help them be able to see that he's a God of love, not how do I help them explain away what God just said? 
We're focused on the issue in God's word. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to start with a frame of reference that says scripture has the truth. Okay. Are you guys all right? Yes. All right. Because here's the part. Your part comes next. I'm just giving you a, a little momentum here to begin to pick your questions. Uh, if they want to, where is uh, my media crew here? Oh, they're all in plaid right in front here. It's another thing that's decried in Leviticus, <laughs> so you know. Uh, where do, do they text in? How do they text their questions in? Do they know how to do that? Uh, do we have that? AJ, can we put that up there? There you go. Grab your phone. Go to Menti. There is the code. If you have a question for tonight, you can plug it in there. Also, if we're going through a whole bunch of information, and I will tonight, and you want the notes from this evening, uh, if you will send uh, a request to info at SalemHeightsChurch.org, we'll just send you all of the notes, including the quotes I had from After the Ball and some of those other uh, extended quotes of uh, uh, statements that I'm making here this evening. We'll give it all to you. We just ask that you handle that um, cautiously and with kindness. So if you have questions, that's going to be next. We're going to, I just want to hit a few things, and then we'll open it up. What does the Bible actually say? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 that God designed human sexuality to be expressed between a man and a woman. He actually designed this from the beginning. It was his intention that it would be good, that it would be a picture of community, that it would be a satisfying relationship. In Genesis uh, 2... 18, it says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him or suitable for him. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So he's agreeing with God. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs, closed up the place with his flesh the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And he said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He gives you the picture of marriage and the beginning of family and the idea there, even of how that relates to community. It's God's exclusive relationship. There's just only one thing because of time this evening. Uh, there's much that we should say, and I think we should actually be doing a better job of talking about relationship and sexuality within marriage. God's design for that is a beautiful thing. We should be honoring that more highly. But the word there, suitable, is very important. There was not found a helper suitable, literally in the Hebrew, uh, kenegdo, uh, a counterpart that is equal and opposite of him. Some of the objections to this passage is, well, it wasn't that uh, Adam needed a wife or a woman. He just needed a human because all of the other animals had somebody. But the implication of Scripture was that God actually made somebody that was opposite of him. You ask any married couple if that is the case. <laughs> There's somebody that's so opposite and actually, if the design in marriage was to help you learn how to serve in order to receive blessing, how to serve others, um, 
Marriage is a perfectly designed situation to learn how to serve and let go of yourself. Homosexuality then was not a part of the original design. In fact, uh, what we find is in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 23, that God says that this is not a part of my plan. In verse 22 of 18 in Leviticus, it says, you shall not be with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination to me. He lists that out. Some say that, well, you're talking about the book of Leviticus, so doesn't it have all kinds of crazy things? It tells you you're not supposed to sow two kinds of seed in there. Are you really going to punish people for that today? And it does say that you shouldn't wear plaid. Are we going to kill these men in the front row? (laughs) And I say to that, sometimes plaid is still wrong. Okay, sorry. Checkered. There, there were three different categorizations in the law, and uh, you had the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral law that uh, has been accepted. That's not a, a modern construct. That's even how the Jews had looked at that, that there were certain things that were moral laws that remain. All of these moral laws get brought up again in the New Testament under Christ. This is one of them, that it maintains that consistency all the way through the New Testament, the statement to the churches. It, it does not go away. Civil and ceremonial law, why did he say don't wear plaid or don't sow your fields with two different kinds of seed? He said, because I want Israel to be a picture of purity, of focus on me. So he actually told them, while you're a nation, because we're not a nation now, we're a, a different people, it's a new economy, but when they were a nation, he says, as a nation, I have to put rules in there, even how to run your traffic, how you deal with people that are coming through, what you do with borders. Those aren't something that we have in the New Testament age. So he had laws in there that went away at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But some remain. Those moral laws have always been accepted in every generation as eternal, as ones that continue on into the future. It wasn't part of God's plan, and it's stated as such. But also in the New Testament, Christ uh, affirmed everything that the Old Testament said about marriage. In fact, anything that he said I need to correct, he would bring up. So his affirmation of the law and those things, especially the moral law, Christ did not undo anything in the moral law. He undid civil laws. He undid the things that man had added to the law. He affirmed the purpose and plan for marriage. He discouraged those who operated outside the plan for marriage. Two passages tonight that should hit home because they are New Testament passages and they inform us in this age of the church what we are to think. And then we'll ask some questions. Romans 1, 24 through 27. Actually, it starts in verse 21. I'll I'll state that and then read 24. But it says, although that they knew God, and this is the early race of man, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity and dishonoring their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And the creature is not just animals, but also they worshiped themselves. They worshiped other people. (laughs) 
says, uh, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for that which are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women for those that were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. A couple of important statements, and that's an intense passage. I want to just recognize that. But when it says God gave them over, it literally is the idea that they were pushing against the chain and pushing against the chain. Has anybody walked a little dog? Yeah? We have a little dog, and uh, we, we would walk this little creature, and it will pull and pull and pull or stop. And, and when it's just pulling and pulling and pulling and there's traffic going by, there are times where inside me, I just want to let go of the leash. <laughs> right? That would be me giving them over to whatever it is that they want to do. This is uh, a much more serious moment, though. It said that God gave them over and they began to do what they always wanted to do. But the reason that it's heartbreaking is not for the penalty that they receive. He says, the reason I've been holding you back is the penalties that reside on the other side of that choice are not good. So the things that you're going to face if you go that direction are not good. So God's holding back is not because he doesn't want them to enjoy life. It's because there is a pattern and a process that will lead to destruction. There are things on the other side, he says, that are harmful, and my concern is actually for them. But they kept pulling and pulling and pulling, so he lets them go, and there's a stage. And then he lets them go, and there's another stage. But they quit. They kept going, and he says, and he lets them go again. This is the sign of the degradation of a society. And if you look at all three of those decisions, you will see in our United States plateaus where each one of those systematically have happened once again in the United States. We're at the third level. This is a consistent issue. It's releasing a culture to go their own way. Verse 32 says, even though they know God's decree, so they see what it is in Scripture, that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. They are cheering on that decision. Now, is this just God saying for inordinate passions? That's what has been said about this passage. That it, it just doesn't want you to, to run around from relationship to relationship to relationship, that this is not actually talking about committed relationships between men and women or even uh, in gay relationships. In, in same-sex relationships, they said we can have a committed relationship and then we would not be in this passage, but that's not what it's saying at all. The indication that it is for want and pleasure, or it's talking about pederasty where uh, the, the men would take away young boys in Greek and Roman culture. It's not talking about that. It actually, by highlighting the relationship of women in there, which has never been a cultural phenomenon in those cultures all the way up until today, he is saying this is something that has gone beyond the pale. When it hits a culture like this and it begins to impact your women in this exact same way, he says there's a change that has happened where they are not just for the sin, but they are against God. They say, I hate what God says about this. Do you hear that? In our culture, they say that. Final one, and then 
our questions. 1 Corinthians 6, and this is really the one that grabs me. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I want you to be very careful to read this list and notice that in your scripture, there's not one, I believe, depending on, in any normal Bible, there's not one that is bolded, okay? Do not be deceived. By the way, every time you read that in scripture, you should underline it because that means he has to tell you because we will typically play mind games with what he's about to say. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or the greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now make sure you read this with it. It's in the same paragraph. And such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands in here if you've been on that list, okay? But the church of God, when we hear that Jesus Christ saves sinners, we ought to all say, Amen. Amen. He saves us. We are on that list. It's not just one issue, but it is a sign. Homosexuality is one of those that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me make sure that you understand what we believe that is teaching. It is not that God says, I refuse to give you the kingdom of God. The offer of salvation and the kingdom of God goes to all of those people. Do you know that? Every single one of them. Why? How do I know that? Because you have responded to Jesus Christ and received the offer. Okay? When it says they will not inherit the kingdom of God, what is he saying? They want this and they have said, if you take this away from me, I refuse to worship you. And they say, I refuse the kingdom of God. I do not want your gift if you take this away from me. Now remember, the Christian says, Lord, whatever you take from me, if it needs to be my family, if it needs to be my home or sexuality or whatever it is, my gold, my home, my happiness as we would define it in the United States, you want to take any of that stuff away? It's yours, Lord. I love you. Take it. But he says when you're involved on the, in these things, on this list, you will actually say, God, if you take this, I will not follow you. And you won't receive it. That's the concern in this passage. A refusal to respond to God. So the Bible is pretty clear. It hasn't changed. These words have been here uh, in the New Testament. 2,000 years they have stood and been understood in that way. So I'm going to ask the guys to come up here very quickly. And uh, uh, Timmy, where's Timmy at? There he is. All right. Wearing a plaid shirt. I'm out of dress code. We're going to ask some questions right here, and then uh, if you don't have the ability to text or you say, man, I just want to make sure I get this said, uh, we'll actually take some from the audience as well. Pete has, uh, do we have more than three questions on there already? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Um, and I want to, uh, uh, I'll interject a few of these if they're going to be helpful. We'll go through these. And then I just want to make sure that we have some time right at the very end for me to make a couple pastoral remarks. Is that okay? Yes. All right. Thank you, Pete. That's the right answer. You can tell Pete has been well trained. He's about to get a raise for that, I think. so. Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Edit that out of the audio. All right, Pete, what do we have? Yeah. There's a lot of good questions, and uh, they're coming in pretty rapidly, so um, we'll get to as many as we can. Yeah. And uh, if, if your question is not answered tonight, um, we'd be happy to meet with you outside of this tonight to be able to, to talk with you about these. There's a lot of good ones. So first one for you guys is this. How do we as parents talk with young kids about this, especially with it being introduced at such a young age now in the schools? Yeah. That's a good question. Tim, do you want to dodge that one or uh, take it? You've got the microphone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have really young kids. So um, this has been actually on my wife's and my heart as uh, our youngest is in kindergarten. Uh, I'll be honest, the first uh, conversation was fear. And we were going, oh my goodness, we're sending, sending our girl. Um, and then I, I praise God, we had godly people come into our life have been down the road uh, and I think the thing that um, we tackle a lot in our youth ministry is um, is this word identity and the fear is just because I have these feelings um, does that mean this is who I am um, and I think that this conversation uh, is being fed by I am what I feel I am what I feel um, and what we see in scriptures is that I, my identity's given from God, and so I'm made in His image, I'm made in His likeness, and so just because I feel a certain way, that doesn't define me. Um, I can have a lot of feelings during the day. Um, I can have a lot of thoughts, but it's my God who defines me. And so in, the, in this conversation that my wife and I have had, um, and also that we've had a lot with the students in our youth group, that's where we start. Uh, it's our worldview um, in terms of how to tackle this and how to approach this. Uh, I think the the passage that comes to mind is out of First Peter chapter three, and that we would love and that we would do um, we'd fall in Christ's steps um, in love. And if there is any unjust treatment, which has happened, there's a number of youth group students here tonight. We've had these conversations. It's happened. Um, how do we respond when you're isolated in a classroom when the teacher brings it up how do you respond and in that moment that is an amazing opportunity to not respond with what the world would give but instead reflect Christ's love as he stood and he didn't fire back hate as he didn't fire back reprimand and our students like in this class in this tonight have done that um, in their choir classrooms in their, uh, in their classrooms here in the city. And it's been amazing to watch. And so I, I view it as an opportunity to share, share the gospel in those times. Um, and the conversation's not yeah. stopping. I don't know how <laughs> no, that's good. Carl, I, I, uh, I wanna ask you, one of the things that we've developed here on a regular basis for people to help in sticky situations are truth statements, uh, or we've developed certain thoughts because it's one thing to know that we've got to be able to share the truth in love. Uh, it's another thing to know what to say in the moment. So how do I say something and not just wait for the, the anger to well up in me so I say something and then maybe it's wrong, but how do I also not be afraid and, and just step completely away? And truth statements help us. Do you have any that will be helpful here? 
first, as young parents, if you do have young children, um, the, be the time to begin to train and have discussions isn't when now it's on the topic of homosexuality. We need to be already sharing so many truths with our children so that when now a controversial topic comes up, we've already been working through all kinds of just normal topics and all kinds of normal developmental things that go on when you go from four to five to six to 10. And so I think oftentimes, even as adults, we prepare for arguments and battle, but we need to just be preparing for everyday life. Mm -hmm. and, and so, and so um, I will admit that now we have 24 years old, 18, a lot has changed. Um, even with our kids having all gone through public school at different times and graduating from great high schools in the area. Um, but I think that there were times where now we need to help our kids begin to develop truth statements such as not immediately going to a defense of our biblical positions, but being able to say things like, I can understand how you're struggling and Jesus can help you with that. That would be incredibly difficult. I feel bad for some of the bullying that you've experienced. Um, so making statements that are affirming and truthful, um, because if you are the next kid that is a Christian that now is potentially going to be harsh, um, then, then you've gotten into training your kid to respond now the way that most people want to predict that response. So developing truth statements with your kids is talking with them and then being prepared for in class if you were feeling pressured to verbalize something that you don't believe is true from scripture. How can you be prepared for that? At this time, I, I wanna listen and learn. I, um, and, uh, and then the individual kid has to be evaluated on what kind of kid is going to be responding with a true statement and how confident are they? So as parents, we have to be preparing them and listening to them and preparing them for the classroom setting. And I think one of the assumptions that can be made, I, I think two things, uh, one of the assumptions that can be made is, well, you know what, the world's just getting so treacherous. Let's just pull our kids out of public school and put them in a Christian school, or let's just homeschool them. We'll just have them go to church. And, uh, and those can be good options. But here's one of the things I want you to be aware of. 56% right now of kids that are in this younger generation, in high school or younger right now, think that the older generations have overreacted. They don't have any biblical basis for why they believe what they believe. Because we're not talking about scriptural truth in our homes, because we don't know what God believes about anything, when we say God says in just one area, but we don't say that in the rest of our lives, we're not constantly talking about the Lord. We, they don't see us praying or working through scriptural axioms. It, it seems like an aberration. Why would you pull that out here, but we're not doing that? One of the, the classic uh, attacks against Christians is, well, you pull this one topic out, but you don't really believe in the sanctity of marriage. And they pull that out and they say, well, how many people that are actually attacking us are part, a product of divorces and they've got all these other wrecks in their lives and they're angry people. They don't live up to anything else. You just don't like my aspect of life. Living out what we say we believe is important in every area. Do you know that? 
So we have to agree that we have dropped the ball in living out our Christian faith in every other area. And, and in fact, what, that's one of the attacks that comes up. Isn't it hypocritical for Christians to single out homosexuality when divorce and coveting and reviling are just as strongly condemned? And we would say, yes, it is hypocritical if we're doing that. We need to make sure everything is seen the way God sees it, not just one issue. But that doesn't make this issue less important, okay? It's critical that we have a right understanding. If we do not agree with God, we will stiff arm him in every other area of our spiritual walk. We'll reject his truth in every other area. You can't just ignore him in scripture without a consequence. Uh, Pete. Yeah. Next question is this. Is it, uh, excuse me, is same-sex attraction sinful as long as one doesn't act on it physically? That's a good one. Um, can I borrow that really quick? Matt, I feel like you're ready for this. I heard that earlier. I could read your body language. You could read my body language. Yes. Okay, so as I lead the Addictions Victory Group here, and, and as we discussed this earlier, yeah. actually we had a discussion. The reason he, he said that is because we had this discussion. Um, let, me say, let me start with temptation is different than sin. Mm -hmm. True? So Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin is what scripture says in Hebrews chapter 4, 12 through 16. At, a, at the deepest level, Jesus was tempted in every way we can be and yet did not sin so that he could go as the perfect sacrifice to that cross for us, the Lamb of God, and, and take the sins of the world on him because he was sinless. So that obviously means then no, temptation is not sin. True? Acting out on temptation, whatever that temptation is, is addicting. It, that, it's, it's false worship. It's we now are taking what's been created by the creator and we begin to worship something other than him, which takes us down a slippery slope. And that can look like a myriad of different things. And so in the midst of that, what Jesus came was to break that Adamic cycle that started and showed up in Cain. And he, and he literally came in as the perfect sacrifice for us, being tempted in every way so that we can go with confidence to the throne of grace over whatever that looks like. So no, temptation is not sin. And when we do get tempted and we can run to the throne of grace to help give us grace and mercy in our time of need because we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses is what Hebrews 4, 12 through 16 says. Yeah. We can then, but it starts with the gospel, doesn't it? It starts with, did Christ really die for all of, now insert your name, for your sins, all of them, once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Access then as a princess or a prince of heaven, 24-7, to be able to overcome any temptation that comes. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I think um, the one other thing that I... And I believe that we struggle with. Are you doing good, Carl? I gave it to him. Oh no! You can't give it to Timmy without a warning. Okay, so all right. The the one thing that I do see is that uh, some folks will say, "Well, I've I've struggled with this temptation inside of me," but but it's not just with same sex attraction, and that's growing in our culture because there is just way more temptation that is going on, way more vibes that are being put out there, way more planting of ideas that's there. 
our culture is awash with messaging that would cause them to go there. But I also think that um, we have a sensuous society. So we have a society right now that is constantly just taking care of their own needs. And what scripture indicates is that one of the things that happens in a decadent society are these types of sins. Um, but would you, would you speak, we talked just briefly about identity. I heard that about um, uh, that it's not sin, um, but is there a genetic link? Uh, can you speak briefly to that? And can you give any actual backup? Okay, and so if we are, you're speaking to the issue of research and um, what science or medical science seems to address. Um, and so one of the things that I would encourage us to do is to actually read research, not just in the newspaper, but actually go to the research. Yeah. And so I will present one example, and I think I'll connect it to the question on transgender as well, because I think that there was a question there about transgender yeah. issues. And so if we go back into the history of this country and we look at the different medical research institutes, um, there was one significant group of individuals, um, and they now in 2016, they were individuals that in the past were pioneering biological um, gender reassignment. And so their research was... And, and by that you mean they were the pioneers in surgical reassignment of people to try and help them fulfill what they identity, thought they were on the inside. Identity. Okay. And so the reasoning was these individuals were feeling trapped in a body that wasn't theirs. They were also experiencing severe things like depression, anxiety, wanting to take their lives. And so the solution was a biological solution. The solution was if we reassign gender, that then we'll take care of those issues because they will be who they are identifying inside as trapped, a woman trapped in a man's body or a man trapped in a woman's body. And so these pioneers then began to do gender reassignment surgery. So then in 2017 and 2016, and you can look at this uh, published report, Sexuality and Gender Findings from the Biological, Psychological, and Social Sciences. These individuals were basically now put on the list of do not listen to them because what they began to do is readdress their research and saying, we're not sure that's true. First of all, when we look at research that looks at people that are, are having issues of gender identity, without any treatment at all from the ages of about 13 to the late 20s, more than 50% of those individuals with no treatment, no gender reassignment, when they get into um, closer to their 30s, begin to report they don't have those identity issues anymore. And so now they're rethinking the idea of assigning biological gender based upon that inside my identity is female or male. These are individuals that are not believers that are now beginning to question how they answered the question of those issues. Okay, so why is that research important? Because if research becomes our truth, you realize that research just changed. The conclusions of those research just changed over a period of 30 years. But if we approach gender and identity based upon the Word of God, the Word of God is unchanging. 
And so then, we view these struggles that humanity does have from a biblical framework, and then we all, not just in the issue of sexuality, um, homosexuality, or transgender issues, but what we all need to look at is our identity before Christ was all, from God's perspective, idolatry. We were all pursuing our strong desires and passions, not just homosexuality. We were all in need of an identity change. What? That Jesus is our identity. That we were all headed to disaster. And so we highlight this area of transgender and homosexuality, but when we're reading the research, what we're finding out is even they are sw they're switching their opinions. These men now have been attacked placed politically on this list, no longer are they acceptable when they were once pioneers and experts in the field. Yeah. I, I think uh, what we had talked about before, the, the, the kind of just a summary, it, and I have shared this before, that I, I don't think we had to fight the genetic aspect. Don't, don't fight that battle. Uh, and the reason is, there, there are things in the world, an argument has to work both ways. And so um, there's also a genetic link to having a predisposition towards cancer, uh, a predisposition towards, uh, you know, they've said alcoholism or obesity or whatever it is. Our society's looking for genetic links. Should we embrace those things then? Our society chooses, well, no, we, we can find a way to correct this or to fix this on certain subjects. So. It's not about uh, embracing something just because I have a predisposition. It really is. God says there's a certain way that I want you to live out your life that will cause you to receive my truth and not reject it. And do I believe that? It's a lordship issue. That's the fundamental issue. Will I take God at his word and trust him over my own opinion and my own direction? Am I going to be self-focused or am I going to be focused on God's opinion? Um... Pete? Yeah, next question. How should I respond if I'm invited to a gay wedding? Yeah, that is a good question. In fact, uh, and I want to add to that, uh, we had somebody say we have a family member who married somebody that is of the same gender. Should we reject them? Yeah. Uh, who wants to tackle that one? Me. <laughs> 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 What's that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, we were we were talking about in discussion today about this word friend. Yeah. And friend has different meanings. Yeah. Um, friends, uh, friend can either be I approve of something, or I'm I I'm acquainted. Mm -hmm. Right. We have a, a lot of different meanings of that. You brought up a story earlier today. We we can say the same thing, but it has two different meanings. I. Uh, I love this person. I, I am in love with this person. Right? Yeah. There's two completely different meanings in that. And so when, G, when we, you even said it earlier here tonight that Jesus was the friend of sinners. Um, did he approve of the brothels? Did he approve of Zacchaeus's sin? Or did yeah. he say, hey, I, I want to I have a meal with you. I want to invite you into a relationship with the creator of the entire universe. And the society was back, like all the Pharisees were like, wait, what? 
wait, wait, you're claiming to be God, yet you're a friend of him? Don't you know who that is? And Jesus is like, well, yeah, I made him, right? <laughs> he knows who he is. He sees his heart. And so to this, to this you know, question, I would just invite first a, a definition of what, what, is friend, what does friend of sinners mean? And yeah. Maybe if you, because we were talking about that earlier. Today. Yeah, I, and I think uh, in the, the scripture it says to love your neighbor, right? And then I actually had somebody come over to the house that says, hey, I think I love my neighbor. And that word just changed, okay? <laughs> And it turned out they were going to lose their marriage because they loved their neighbor. And uh, that was not what scripture meant. But sometimes we just get so flat with that word when it says friendship with the world is enmity or hatred towards God, right? In James chapter four. So we want to be careful not to have that kind of friendship or that friendship uh, in the world can actually change our thinking. But how is it that Jesus was a friend of sinners? So he always set the tone. He always had a consistent message. He invited them in, but they heard from him these truths. So I love you. Here's what I want from you. Here's what I want you to understand. It was always a reorienting message. And then they chose to leave if they did not want that message. So I think in our relationships, we need to make sure that we are doing that, where we set the tone, but we are always kind and and have an open door. I, I will say this. There's some nuance here, though. If I've done something to affront the family and I've said, I'm going to prove to you this and and they say, I want to bring this relationship into the house to to thumb it at you or to harm others or to impact your family. I do believe as a believer, we have moments where we may have to say, you know what? This isn't the place for that. That's okay. Not in our home, not in this way, not at this time, because we've already said these things. We love you. We'll have a relationship with you. We're going to treat you with kindness but, but when you're coming in trying to make a statement, it's going to flavor Christmas, all right? It's going to flavor that time. So it's appropriate. I believe you have to, with your own conscience, be able to settle that out. The question is, with the way that I have just treated them, can I also share the gospel and it be consistent character? Okay? That's the question. Have you done that with grace? Now, if you're getting attacked all the time, don't, don't leave your door open. All right. We're not asking you to open it up or punch in the face every day. That's not the scripture's intention. But we do want you to be thoughtful about that. To to be a friend of sinners uh, is to make a clear line. This is what God says. Bring it up every time. I love you. God has a better plan for you. And they'll say, you know, you say that every time. How about if we just don't come over? So I I think that's part of that discussion. But we do need to be... um, kind. I do think that uh, it's not as simple, though, as a do this or do that equation. I want you to hear that. Pray with other believers. Make sure that you're thoughtful about that. And it may be right for you to say, we have to separate. Okay? That's an appropriate response. Um, But be mindful about how is it that you're going to build a bridge or, or pray a bridge into their life. Would you be willing to see them saved if they responded? Would you welcome them with open arms? Make sure your heart's in that healthy place. Pete? Yes. Uh, next question. How do we then effectively minister to homosexuals within our church? Yeah. Th- that's a good question here. So th- here's the, the issue. Um, how many of you know that it's possible you sat by an alcoholic tonight? Don't out them. You know that? Do you know that some of you sat by a covetous person tonight? Yeah? 
by definition, I'm reaching after things that I cannot afford, and I'm going to go out and do that even if it wrecks my home, okay? It's possible. It's getting a little unnerving now, isn't it? If I had you go around and point out those people and say, how should I receive those people? That is an intense question. How should you treat homosexuals? You should treat them like any other thing. That that is, if I focus on this sin, I will reject God's best. And we should have those discussions in every single area of sin. If they come in, there were uh, two gals that came into our church, and here was the best news that I had heard. Uh, They came into our church, and I asked them, how is it that you found Salem Heights? And they said, we were told by some people in the community that if we wanted to investigate Christ, this would be a safe place to do that. Week after week after week, I got messages from people. Are you aware that there are two that are holding their hands in the auditorium? Hey, if they don't know Jesus and they're here to investigate that, let's let that be. Love those folks. And at the end of that six-week period, both of them came forward, gave their life to Christ, and they said on their own, we had no messages about it. They said, we know that before God there are things in our life that have to change. Will you pray that we're able to do that? How should we treat them? I'm telling you right now, God loves those two girls, okay, and still does. And it's an amazing thing. Now, is it going to be an easy road? Those affections don't just dry up and go away. And just like with an alcoholic that will struggle here and there, and just like with uh, somebody who's struggling with covetousness and, and they just need that next thing, and all of these things on the list, just like with them, there's going to be ups and downs. We walk with them and say, hey, God loves you. Will you stay focused on him and not you? Will you not run this through the filter of self and run it through the filter instead of, if God loves me, he'll enable it. If he says this is the way, he'll give me the strength to serve him today. Do you believe that? Man, if not, you're not a sinner saved by grace. So that's how I think we ought to treat these folks, because they're not a pariah. They're sweet, wonderful people. Wonderful folks who need Jesus, just like you and I. Pete? Uh, This next question, there's a couple of them that are just asking for you to kind of just address that in the Bible, the word abomination is used linked yeah. to homosexuality. Does that in some way make it a greater sin, a more important sin to God? How do we, what should be our response to that question? Yeah. I'll, I'll ask you guys to add comment to this, but I think one of the things we have to see is um, there are sins listed throughout Scripture, and God looks at those and says, hey, there is something egregious about this that will cause them to stiff-arm me to the point they'll reject heaven forever. That's the pattern. It's an abomination. Um, I had doctors when I'm going through cancer who looked at what was in my body as an abomination because they could see the wreckage that it would happen to me as a result. It's okay to look at that sin and say, you're not going to survive this unless something happens. All right. So abomination is used with that kind of uh, inflection. Uh, it, it is egregious to God because you grab onto these things. You're openly saying, I reject God's best and I'm going this direction. And I'm willfully saying, I, I don't want God to hear from you in this area. I refuse to hear you. Change your mind or you don't get me. That's what some sins will cause us to do. So, I don't know. And I think when you look at Romans chapter 1, which we've referred to already, we see that in all ages, humanity has been in more and more and more deepening bondage 
okay? And so as we see cultures and as we see times in the scriptures, we see people struggling with all kinds of sins, but when in a culture the pattern of sin becomes so consistent and pervasive, it's like I'm giving you over, you're, the Lord is giving those individuals over to that, that there is something going on even in our nation, which is we're being given over to uh, pharmaceutical drugs and we are given over to uh, marijuana and alcoholism and methamphetamines and 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 it's the the culture is sliding further and further and further and we're even making laws now justifying that okay so I think that as we see Romans chapter 1 that now these times and cultures be being given over over to these patterns that it does become more and more of a bondage that the culture is known by. Yeah. Okay. And so I think that then it's the culture and the individual saying, no, I don't want Jesus. I don't want the truths of scripture. I don't want to be saved if it's on your terms. So we look at it from our culture as somehow God is saying, but really the individual is saying, He's stiff-arming God. Mm -hmm. So God gives you over to that. Yeah. I, I think one of the reasons that maybe we're all here tonight is um, when I was growing up, and this was after the strength of what would be really a cultural Christianity that had washed through the United States in the late 50s, and you see this a resurgence towards faith after the Second World War. Um, and, and there was a season where it seemed like even if they weren't believers, that anybody that would come near a church would take off their hat, they would quit cussing, they'd throw their cigarettes away, right? There was a respect that just was across our nation. And we just assumed that everybody had cultural Christian values, even if they didn't have Christ. And we assumed those things. And what ended up happening was Christian families stopped talking about truth because they didn't need to talk about it. And that cultural Christianity was the kind of teaching that they were getting uh, and and we, usur we, we let that go. We let the actual expectation of Scripture that we as family members would talk about the truth of God in our homes, we let that go away. We didn't do what Deuteronomy 6 begs us to do. And then all of a sudden we arrive at a moment where the culture all around us is starting to talk a completely different game. And now we're nervous. But here's what I want you to understand. Historically, Christians have not been sitting in the center of the goodwill of their nation. Historically, Christians have been seen as those who are against or opposite or afoul of what the culture is doing. We're just hitting reset back to normal, okay? When they're writing scripture in Rome, it wasn't like Christianity was this really popular group. Man, those Christians, I'd really love to hang out with them. They throw a great party. That wasn't it. Christianity was on the outside. Christianity was on the outside in, in uh, world culture all the way up until recently. So what we're experiencing right now is just we have to teach our kids that if you believe in Christ, there is rejection. We haven't actually experienced that at this level like we are again, but they will experience rejection. We have to prepare them to be rejected for that truth, even as they love other people, which means that they'll be battered even as they're trying to serve. That's what we're called to. And the real 
Christian faith will rise up and it'll be purified in the middle of that. It's an opportunity as much as it is a hardship. But what we're being forced to deal with is we as parents have been embarrassed. And I think one of the things we have to do is repent of that. Folks, we've got to repent of the fact that we have been cowardly Christians for a generation. We've wanted somebody else to speak for us. Get me a leader. Get me a shock jock on the radio, but I don't want to have to say it. I want to rally behind them. Well, what the Lord is saying is you need to say this in your home or you're going to lose your family. Give them a spine. Give them some help, but help them to do it in love because when you just wait up and screw up the courage, you'll get angry, and that's not what God wants. Pete, do we have one more? Yeah, we, we have, uh, yes. I can How many more do you have on there? Um, quite a few. Okay. A lot of them are, are kind of in the same vein. Yeah. Um, so maybe time for two. Okay. Ones. Yes. Um, how do we respond to the, the fact that Daddy. there's not dozens and dozens of verses that speak specifically to the issue of homosexuality? That it's, there are key verses that we've covered, a lot of them tonight, but there's, are, are to those who say that Christians are making a bigger deal about something that the Bible doesn't, is it a big deal to God? Yeah. Well, my thought on that question, and we did discuss this a little bit, yeah. earlier, was this. So when we go back, and it's going to piggyback off of the, the, what you just discussed. Mm -hmm. If we go back to the purpose of the law, the law over Israel was to bring us Jesus. Well, we, we, need to, we need to realize that, that the law was placed over Israel to keep Israel Israel all the way to the Messiah coming, because Israel was going to run amok amongst the, the Gentile nations and just absorb everything from them if God didn't put law over the top of them to get us to Jesus, who would then be the fulfillment of the law, so that he might then, yeah. as we believe on him, give us the righteousness of God, which we could never fulfill by trying to obey the law. Now, in the midst of that, as we look then at Scripture, you don't need to mention things very many times for us to know God's standard on those things. If you read the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you're going to have a pretty good idea about a lot of things that the law had said. If you don't have a savior, you're doomed. So in the midst of those things, once it's said, it's said. And, and there's many things that only get mentioned a few times. I don't know the last time anyone wanted to eat an owl. But the law said don't. <laughs> Well, actually, in Oregon, it's illegal, it, too. It, so, well, yeah, in yeah. Oregon, just no. Yeah. That'll if go it's, badly. If it's spotted, that's terrible. But, but the reality is the <laughs> law was there to give us, take us to a Savior. And he said he's the fulfillment of the law. And to believe on him, he then gives you a helper. And that helper then brings back to remembrance everything that he said. And he didn't need to say it very many times. <laughs> and then as he produces fruit in you that there is no law against, you then live out this fruit. And the law was to bring us Jesus so that we might live that out. So in the midst of that, that's how I would yeah. answer that. I, I think um, what we see in, in Scripture is that uh, Jesus was also silent on some other things. Bestiality, incest, pedophilia, all topics from uh, Leviticus. Um, he was silent on those, but we don't find anyone saying, well, I think he agreed with them then. Uh, so we stay away from that. But there's also, there's two ways. There's, there's the negative, do not do this. And that's a way that Jesus can say he's against things. 
But the other way that we affirm truth is, is by uh, the positive. So if I were, to, if there were four or five women on the stage right here and one of them was my wife, I could go through in here in order to show you who sweetness is, uh, Christina, uh, if, to show you who she is, I, I, I could point out and say, well, that's not my wife and that's also not my wife and that's also not my wife. Or I could just point at Christina and say, there is my wife. And, and somebody noticed uh, this last week, partway through one of the services that I paused, I got a little bit lost. Sometimes I'll just see her sitting in random seats in the auditorium, and uh, I will think in my mind, there's my wife, and I'll forget what I'm preaching. <laughs> She's that wonderful. But by identifying her, that automatically says all the other things are not. Okay, so Jesus lifted up affirmed marriage. He condemned sexual activity outside of marriage. He said, this is what we designed. The Father and I made this for communion, made this for an identification, made this type of relationship to be central. And he didn't need to say any more. This is what we designed. And that's his story. So one other. And again, thank you for all the questions tonight. And we're happy to meet with those that asked a question that didn't get answered. We were, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, last question, guys. We kind of talked about how we should treat those we know who are, uh, have same-sex attraction, um, but how should we minister to those who are broken, who want help to heal? Like, how do we help a person have victory over same-sex attraction? Yeah, cheeks. Made, you're made to minister. <laughs> you guys know that, right? <laughs> Isn't that what we've been talking about? Let me ask you a question. If you are at school or at work or at church, how would you know that someone was even homosexual or struggling with the issue of same-sex attraction? You might observe it, and if they're not your friends, if you have no relationship with them, I, I doubt it's like Jesus is saying, you need to go to them right now and just tell them, I know you're gay, and, and then thus says. Okay, so we have to think about our approach and how would Jesus approach it. But in most cases, you're going to become aware that someone in your life is dealing with the issue of same-sex attraction or homosexuality because they begin to talk to you. And in the church or outside of the church, when they share what their struggle is, can you thank them for trusting you enough to let you into their life? Thank you for trusting me enough to let me into mm -hmm. your life. Then begin to listen. And you can begin to now sense a heart condition. Are they angry? Are they hurting? Are they rebellious? Are they looking for questions, uh, answers to their questions? So begin to ask them about these things because each individual is unique in their struggle. So you don't want to just like have one approach. You want to be able to go to what is the individual really looking for in that they're verbalizing this to me. Are they in crisis? Do you know that there may be individuals in our church and in our community that are dealing with the issue of same-sex attraction or having lived it out and now are feeling guilty, shame, and they're suicidal. Can you listen and find out if they are in jeopardy of hurting themselves physically? So you have to assess that, you have to listen. Are they so angry that there is no 
debating or arguing and it's just a matter of listening? Or are they searching for answers? And can you now, like Jesus, address their heart condition in gentleness, in kindness, but truth in love? So now go to the Word of God, um, begin to address the issues that they are working through, um, and then you and I are always in need of a helper to ourselves. What? Admit to them, I don't, I don't know all of the answers, but I care about you. Um, I don't have the answer to all of your questions, or I can see that mm -hmm. you are hurting. Can we go to someone that can help us with this? They've opened up to you. You thank them for opening, for opening up to you. Now you assess and you listen, you ask questions, and now we say, let's now, let me help you with this. Yeah. Uh, there may be some times that you assess the individual is wanting to convince you. I'm not sure that you and I are more effective than the Word of God and the Spirit of God of convincing and changing hearts, right? So then we may make deposits of truth, prayer, and then we have to release them to their battle that's going on internally between them and a living God. Yeah. So the assumption at the beginning of that trail is we're starting with the gospel. God loves you. Mm -hmm. He died for you and can help you with this if you'll submit it. So, hey, let's give these guys a hand. Uh, thank them for coming up here. I just want to make a couple of uh, closing statements, and then I'm going to ask us to do something as a group for the high schoolers and college-age kids that are in the room, okay? I'm going to ask us to apply something. I just want to make a couple of statements. Don't worry, we're not going to harm you kids. Uh, but I do, I do feel that it will be appropriate for us tonight. If you're here and you're a high school student or a college-age student, it's probably that you're here wanting answers and maybe nervous about the culture that you're in. What are they asking me to do? I want us to pray for courage, clarity, uh, and, and a clear response to the gospel in your own heart. We want you to live this out with boldness in an age that will not receive that always kindly. Uh, we don't want to send you out like lambs into lions, okay? But we do want to pray for you and let you know that we're behind you. So I want them to feel this entire group, all right? Is it all right? So I'm going to actually call the high school and college-age students up into the front here in just a moment, and we're going to just place our hands out uh, towards them and pray for them as an entire group. A couple of pastoral statements as we're leaving tonight. Faithful believers will lead with the gospel. Our frame of reference is not what is wrong with the world, what is wrong with uh, our culture. It's not us having an agenda that comes from uh, our own background, our uh, fundamental thinking, or our, our politics. You, you just name it. We have all these structures that... We lay over and say, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. And if you listen to talk radio, you will have a list, all right? We lead with the gospel. Christ died, was buried, and rose again on the third day for sinners to take their place on the cross. All of our sin transferred to him. And the promise is that if we'll place our faith in him, this is the message we're supposed to go out into the world, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're to go out into the world and tell the world that Jesus will put you back into a face-to-face -face relationship with God. He wants you to see eye-to-eye -eye with God and to receive all the blessings of heaven. 
He wants that for you, not counting any of your trespasses against you. All the sin is forgiven. This isn't a God that wants to squash you. It's a God that wants to love you into eternity, but you need to yield to him. We start with the gospel. Second thing I would remind you, as a believer, faithful believers will not stigmatize one sin over another. Okay? Don't stigmatize sin. That's that 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It says, for such were some of you. Anything on that list is in the room. All right? If we were to go through and talk about the egregious sin that is sitting in the room that was forgiven and washed by Jesus, it's a shocking list. Such were some of you, but you're set free. You were washed. You're sitting here in fellowship with other people who are also loved by God. Remember that. Don't stigmatize one as worse than another, saying, well, yeah, I did a lot of sin, but I didn't do that. We pull that out on the list and say it's higher. It's not. It's just one other attraction in the world that will take us away from God's best. Don't stigmatize sin. Third, faithful believers will be known as friends. I want you to hear this and let the, the shock soak into your soul. A faithful believer will be known as friends of the LBGTQ community in the same way that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Matthew 11, for a reference point, it was used as an epithet against him. He's, he eats with tax collectors. He's a friend to them. In what way was he a friend of sinners? We be we need to be friends like that. I would have you write down and underline Romans 2, 1 through 4, where it says that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It doesn't say that the anger of God led you to repentance. It was the kindness. In fact, I would just have you review your own history and see, was it somebody with a sign or somebody with a strong statement that won you to Christ? Or was it somebody who loved you enough to share the gospel and their kindness led you into a discipleship relationship? Though you were unlovely, they were still kind. They were acting like Jesus. Fourth, Faithful believers will proclaim the truth in love. Now, this is the part that's going to be hard for us. This is where it's velvet steel, okay? Steely in our resolve, but kind in the presentation. We will not be bullied into embarrassed silence. Now, this is the part that's important. Talk about your faith in Jesus. Talk about the fact that he loves you. Ask them, how can I pray for you? Ask them with kindness, knowing that you'll get abuse in return. But talk about the love of God. If he is really in your heart, fan that flame and cause other people to see what a joyous Christian looks like. Be open about your faith and be kind to those individuals, knowing that abuse may come back. We won't be bullied into embarrassed silence, but also we will not bully that's a world tactic that is not backed up in Scripture. Don't become bullies. Don't be fist shakers. Don't be the angry mob. Be the ones that are willing to take abuse as you tell them truth and say, as they're headed on their way to a Christless eternity, you're grabbing them around the knees saying, please, please don't go this direction. And if they refuse it, they refuse it. But you need to know the truth in your heart first, and then you proclaim that. Are we okay with that, folks? Okay. What we are saying is God's word has not changed. The grace of God has not changed. His expectation for believers has not changed. The only thing that's changed is that the culture around us is beginning to seep a little bit into our church. 
It's seeping into the, the places around us and we become afraid. Let's just make sure we clean house. We say, I, I am standing with what God says. His love is the answer. The gospel is the answer. But God says, there is a package of things I should not participate in or it'll separate me from the living God. And you in love should tell those folks, God loves you and would love to help you with that problem, with sin. I'd like all of our high school and college age kids, if you could just come right up here in the front. I know I'm asking a lot of you, okay? Some of you don't want to be identified. This is ageism that's happening right now, okay? <laughs> and I want to ask uh, the, the elders that are here, I want to ask some of our key leaders that are around right in front uh, to come up here and uh, just join those right here in the front. Gather up like a, Timmy, will you help them gather like a scared little group here in the middle? <laughs> Let's gather right in the front. Yeah, how thankful are you? Look at this crew, by the way, that decided to come here tonight. How much do you love these kids? So this is what I want us to do. I just want us to stand and be praying for them also because they are the ones also, folks, that are on the front lines, not just you. They're in the front lines of the culture war, and we're asking God to give them strength and wisdom, grace and kindness but also that they would be filled with truth in a world that rejects it, okay? So if you just extend your hands toward them as if you're putting it on their shoulders, we're going to be praying for them right now. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. I'm going to pray for these guys, and we're going to go. Uh, Father, we are all standing in agreement right now, and we're asking that you would help every single one of us to believe the truth of your word, that we would focus on the gospel, that we would understand your love, that we'd be so filled up with it, that we would be impassioned to live for you. And we're asking you to also help these students right now that are in front of us. Father, that you would help them with a clear understanding of what you would have them say and be and do in a world that is hostile. Father, help them to act loving so that when people say that God loves people, no matter what their sin is, that it would be evident in the Christians that are around them that they are a loving lot. Help them to be uh, not only kind, but to be filled with hearts of servanthood. But I pray, Father, that you give them the truth, that they would have a resolve to speak your truth in a world that has a hard time listening, that they'd be willing to take the abuse if that truth is rejected. Father, give them hearts that will not question whether or not you are God, whether or not you have said what is true. Give them strength in this generation to be able to speak truth and to live it. I pray that you would drive it into their souls so that others uh, would see the clarity with which they live and say, man, I, I don't know if I agree with them, but I wish I could live with that kind of clarity. Help them to live it out. And I pray that you would help us as a church to surround them, to encourage them, to bless them, and Father, for any that are coming in out of the cold, for any that have said, I reject Jesus, and now, Father, out of that rejection, I see the truth of the gospel. I'm curious. Father, help us to be welcoming, kind. Help us to be disciplers of those that are struggling. I pray that you would give these students in particular and each one of us the ability to live out these values, to live for you in a day that it's hard. Help us to trust your word, but most of all, to trust that your love is the final answer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here this evening. If you have questions, we're going to stick around for another half an hour up here. If you say, I didn't really want to do that or my question didn't get answered, but you are dismissed. We are so thankful that you are here this evening. <laughs>